This week on the It's a Monkey podcast. Good triggers are well-timed. That the closer the external trigger, the message, the notification is to the internal trigger, meaning the point in time when the user feels this itch, this need of uh, a sensation like boredom or loneliness or seeking connection or uncertainty, any one of these emotions, that's the best uh, time and place to send them these uh, these external triggers that are well timed. Uh, so one example that I give is, you know, I, I was in Toronto recently. Uh, I gave a, a, a talk for a client who had hired me, and I came back to my hotel. It was late at night. I was I was pooped, uh, and then I, I I I was I was tired, but I didn't want to get back to work. But yet I didn't want to go to sleep either. I was kind of almost restless. I wanted to do something, but I didn't know what. So lo and behold, that's the, the second that uh, the, the, the Foursquare app sent me a notification that said, did you know that in your hotel, there's a bar on the top floor that is rated one of the top 10 bars in North America? Well, that was an extremely well-timed trigger. Thank you for joining us on this week's It's a Monkey podcast. This week, we replay an interview that I did with Nir Ayel, who's the author of Hooked, How to Build Habit-Forming Products. This interview was originally broadcast in February 2015. Enjoy. You're back with Kevin Garber and the It's a Monkey podcast. We talk about everything relating to technology, startups, um, social media, you name it, we cover it. We're always looking for interesting personalities to talk with on the show, and we try to keep the podcast interesting for you. You're listening to episode number 55. And uh, at the end of my Skype line, coming to you straight from the Bay Area, I have Nir Ayel, who is uh, the author of a really interesting book called Hooked, How to Build Habit-Forming Products. Nir is also, uh, which um, the book was uh, on the Wall Street Journal bestseller list. Uh, Nira has founded two startups, both of which were acquired, um, and I have him at the end of the Skype line to talk about um, the psychology of notifications. Nir, thank you very much for joining us. Pleasure to be here, Kevin. Thanks for having me. What, um, what led you to your, your, your fascination with notifications and this in- intersection of uh, psychology, technology, and business, which has become uh, a, a very big part of our world? In, in the old days, computers were just, uh, you, you know, the computer department and a very technical, uh, you, you know, or computational element of our world. And now there's this, this beautiful, interesting, fascinating, crazy intersection where it just cuts across all aspects of our life. How did you sort of get onto the, into this particular niche? Yeah, so I, I spent several years in the gaming and advertising business, and uh, let's face it, these two industries happen to be dependent on mind control. Uh, you know, advertisers don't spend all those billions of dollars for their health. Uh, they spend that money because it changes people's behavior. And if you want to look at uh, the, the one of the one of the purest forms of uh, consumer psychology to manipulate user behavior. Uh, you know, you couldn't start at a better place than uh, in the gaming industry, where games are designed step by step to change users' behavior along a particular path. So, anyway, from from the years uh, spent in those two industries, I saw that there were uh, lots of techniques used uh, to change user behavior, but unfortunately, you, there, well, there wasn't any kind of textbook or guide. Uh, for how to apply these techniques for good. And so what I wanted to do after my last company was acquired is I wanted to write this this book 
that could give product makers, uh, entrepreneurs, intrapreneurs, anybody working on new products designed to change user behavior, uh, this, this guidebook, these, these principles, so that they could change habits for good. And that's really what the, what the core of the book is all about, is how do you change consumer behavior using the deeper principles of consumer psychology so that we can help people live happier, healthier, more connected, uh, more productive lives by creating these healthy habits. And I do note you say uh, for good, and we'll get into some of the, the, the ethics of that just a, a little bit later. But we have a lot of people that listen to the podcast that are either um, uh, starting their own startups or want to start startups. Let, let's keep it simple for the moment. But if someone's building a product or um, is in a product role, what are, are some of the basics that are well known that, that, that we can? And let's assume at the moment it's, it's, it's all for good in a way. And, uh, you know, what are some of the elements that they should consider? in their product when uh, factoring in notifications to add value to their users and hence make their products more compelling? Sure. So notifications are just one part of the equation and they go into the entire product. That They're not, they're not separate. They're actually you know, part of what keeps users engaged uh, with the product experience are how people use what I call external triggers. And so the, the framework that I kind of work from in my book and a lot of my research has centered around is called the hook model. Uh, the hook model is this design pattern that connects the user's problem to your solution with sufficient frequency to form a habit. So it's through successive cycles, through these hooks, these four basic steps that user preferences are shaped that tastes are formed and that these habits take hold. And so if we want people to use our product uh, continuously, habitually, if we want them to check in uh, on their own uh, without having to eventually be prompted by advertising or spammy messaging, uh, if we want to create that mental association, we, we have to run people through these four steps of a hook. Uh, these hooks have four basic phases. It's a trigger, an action, a reward, and then finally an investment. And, and we can talk about each one of those phases. This is what I detail in the book. But the uh, notifications or any kind of messages, uh, they fall into the category of external triggers. External triggers are things that tell the user what to do next by giving them some piece of information as opposed to internal triggers, which are these associations where the information for what to do next is stored in the user's mind. So that's where we're eventually going. To create a habit-forming product, we eventually want to not even require notifications or any kind of external triggers. We want people to prompt themselves so that when we're feeling bored, we check YouTube or Reddit. When we're lonely, we hop on Facebook. When we're uncertain, we use Google. That's where these products eventually go. But to get there, we have to start with these external triggers. And so uh, I just published recently this article around, around what makes good triggers and the psychology of good triggers. And so there's a few basic tenets. For example, that the closer the external trigger, the message, the notification is to the internal trigger, meaning the point in time when the user feels this itch, this need of uh, a sensation like boredom or loneliness or seeking connection or uncertainty, any one of these emotions, that's the best uh, time and place to send them these uh, these external triggers that are well timed. Uh, so one example that I give is, you know, I, I was in Toronto recently. Uh, I gave a, a, a talk for a client who had hired me, and I came back to my hotel. It was late at night. I was I was pooped, uh, and then I, I I I was I was tired, but I didn't want to get back to work. But yet I didn't want to go to sleep either. I was kind of almost restless. I wanted to do something, but I didn't know what. 
So lo and behold, that's the, the second that uh, the, the, the Foursquare app sent me a notification that said, did you know that in your hotel, there's a bar on the top floor that is rated one of the top 10 bars in North America? Well, that was an extremely well-timed trigger, right? It just happened to, to coincide. I mean, they, they, they geolocated where I was as soon as I walked into my hotel. That's when I got this notification. Uh, at this time of night when I actually could find this very useful. And of course, I swiped, saw more about the bar, and then headed upstairs and went to check it out. So that would be an example of a well-timed trigger. Uh, other key tenants are that good triggers are actionable. You know, a lot of companies send people notifications and messages and emails with without an explicit message for what to do next. And so that is absolutely critical that you tell the user what to do with each notification. Uh, another thing, uh, finally, is that good triggers spark intrigue, that uh, one of the phases of every hook is a variable reward. And so we have to make sure that there's this bit of intrigue, this bit of mystery, this bit of the unknown uh, that users come back to want to check these apps because of this bit of intrigue. Uh, so when we send a notification, there needs to be some bit of mystery, some bit of the unknown that brings users back to the app again. I mean, Nir, are we, are we moving to a situation where, or we're probably already in a situation where, um, you know, machines, for lack of the, or, you know, big data knows more about us than we know about ourselves, can preempt, um, you know, what's in our own interests even better than we can ourselves. And your, your bar example is a terrific example of that, where it actually knew that there was better than you what you would actually enjoy that that fits in with you that 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 coincides with with your needs it's sort of i mean there's a little bit of a, a sort of spookiness to it isn't there uh welcome to 2015 uh this, this is the new reality we live in today uh for better and for worse i mean the, the, a, a big reason why i wrote this book you know there's two main reasons why i wrote hooked number one reason is because i want to help product make uh, you know, I've started two companies. I know how difficult it is to uh, build products that people actually use. And so I know that the vast majority of, of, of entrepreneurs out there, of innovators, of people who want to make great products, they're not struggling with overuse. They're not struggling with people, you know, using their products too much. Quite the opposite. You know, the vast majority of entrepreneurs are struggling with getting anybody to even care that their product sure. exists. And so that's who I wrote this book for, is if you're, you're building a product to create a healthy habit in people's lives, to make their lives better, and by and large, I believe that these technologies do make our lives better. I, I'm not a Luddite. I love technology. I use it myself, and I'm constantly looking for, for new ways to improve my life through these technologies. I think they're fantastic. But the other big reason I wrote this book was because I believe the world is becoming a potentially more addictive place. And so it's only by understanding these phases of these hooks, how these hooks work, that these products that bring us back time and time again, these are not happening. Uh, these products do not bring us back uh, and create these habits by accident. Uh, these, these guys didn't get lucky. Uh, Facebook and Twitter and Instagram and Pinterest and Slack, these guys didn't get lucky. There's, they either tested into or they very strategically used much of the psychology of what keeps people engaged. And so I think it's it's behooves us to understand how consumer psychology gets us to keep checking our devices and keeps keeps us coming back so that we can do something about it. It's only by understanding how these products work that we can put technology in its place, make sure that we control our our technology habits so that our technology habits don't control us. 
I mean, you, you mentioned in the article that was in TechCrunch, the psychology of notifications, um, you know, obviously the Pavlovian example, the very famous Pavlovian example. Um, I mean, what... I mean, Facebook obviously is the, the classic, um, you know, gold standard of getting a lot of this right, in, in my opinion. I'm interested, right. in, I'm interested to know, though, I mean, is there actually, you know, this, this, there is a chemical element. It, it really reduces down as low as that. I mean, it is, each time there's a Facebook notification, I would imagine there's, there's the equivalent or an actual dopamine hit, right? Sure. So, uh, well, there is certainly a lot of, things very interesting things happening in our in our brains uh when we when we hear a ping or a buzz uh, uh you know some people have have uh, an association that's so strong that there's the, even this uh this phantom ring effect phantom, that yeah. uh, we 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 feel the phone vibrating even though it's not because we just happen to be thinking about it for a minute and, and we instantly check our devices and uh so there's certainly a lot of interesting uh brain uh science happening here uh, that, that gets us to continually check our devices. What, what I focused on in the book is some of the psychology that, that product makers can, uh, can practically use. You know, I, I was a little frustrated because uh, I found a lot of books around behavioral economics and consumer psychology uh, and, and even interface design and uh, human-computer interaction, but a lot of it uh, I, I found didn't blend these two fields very well. There wasn't really a, a guide to how to use consumer psychology uh, to influence behavior for good, uh, I didn't. I didn't find that guide. I wanted something very practical and very uh, actionable for the product makers, and so that's that's why I wrote this book. I think there's a huge potential in terms of marrying notifications with the quantifiable self. I mean, I would I would mm. love this intelligent, um, you know, layer that monitors all my internal physical systems and notifies whether I should should eat x more of this x more of that sleep more of this just totally to sort of you know optimize things i think there's huge potential in that area and obviously wearables are just the absolute first stage of that but i think we're going to see massive developments in that space i i truly hope you're right and and you know there will be i guarantee you that there will be uh bads that come out of these goods as well right i mean i think there's a lot of potential there's a lot of things that can improve our lives and every you know we, this this is nothing new this technology uh cycle of a product coming to market that deals with some kind of human need right some kind of tool that that uh, uh allows us to fix a problem in some way and then as a as a result creates other problems and so i think that's what we're seeing now we're seeing that we've We've kind of wholesale adopted many of our technologies, and by and large, they're great, right? I don't want to go back to a world before iPhones and before Facebook and before email and before Twitter. I mean, these things are wonderful. I, I love these products. Now, but we're, what we're also seeing is that, you know what, there's also uh, a downside, that, that there's a price to be paid for many of these products, and part of the price to be paid is that, uh, that, that, that our attention is becoming increasingly a scarce commodity, that we need to be very careful about uh, not using these products to excess, uh, that, that we make sure that we keep our focus when we need it and that we don't allow these products to interfere uh, with other things we want to do in our life. But, you know, by and large, the, the, these things at times are bad habits for people, but they're not full-fledged addictions, right? They don't harm people. We're not using Facebook intravenously like we do with heroin. Um, and so, and <laughs> they, so you know, they most, would love us to, though. But, right, yeah. maybe, maybe. But but for most people, these are things that they can get under control. And so I'm very optimistic, you know, when it comes to wearables uh, and I think, you know, with biometrics, 
there's going to be all sorts of interesting ways that we can change consumer habits for good by having all this uh, data about what's happening inside our bodies. Well, what worries me a little bit about, I mean, you, th I mean, you said Facebook isn't, you know, it's not taken intravenously, but I've noticed quite a lot of people comment about their Facebook use and that they can't actually control it. And, and they, they, you know, words similar to an addiction, like it's like, um, uh, you know, it's just, I wish I could get off this thing. So I, I think there certainly is a segment of the population that goes too far, that uh, is actually addicted, where by definition an addiction is a, a compulsive dependency on a behavior or substance. And it's something that unlike a habit, which we have good habits and bad habits, addictions are always bad, right? Addictions hurt the user and they can't stop. And so I, there's a very, there's a, I was very uh, deliberate in that I did not call my book How to Build addictive products, I titled the book How to Build Habit-Forming Products because habits can be used for good. And so we would never want to create addictions in our user because, again, the, the addictions hurt people. Now, what, what the, the, the good news is and why I'm, I'm, uh, I'm mildly optimistic is that, you know, we have to remember that addiction is nothing new. That addiction has been around for a very long time and addictive products have been around for a very long time. But what's different now is that unlike addictive products of the past, to say alcohol, right? Alcohol has been around for, for thousands of years and people have been intoxicated and even alcoholics for a very long time. But if you were a manufacturer of an alcoholic drink, you could kind of throw up your hands and say, well, we don't know who the alcoholics are, right? We don't know who's getting drunk. But for the first time, these connected products know, right? They know how much time people are spending on these products. And so I think, and this is what I've written about several times uh, for TechCrunch and other publications, that I call upon companies building potentially addictive products to have what I call a use and abuse policy. Some kind of number that they should have that says that's too much. So maybe Facebook should reach out to you. If you're using Facebook 40 hours a week, if you're playing the Kim Kardashian game, you know, 50 hours a week, if you're, if you're playing... Uh, Candy Crush up to a certain degree, maybe they should reach out to you and say, you know what, you match a similar profile to somebody who is using this product to an unhealthy degree because they know how much people are using these products. Now, whether they actually do something about it is a whole other story, but the fact that they know gives me hope um, because for many of these products, they don't need or want addicts. Like they, they don't need, Facebook doesn't need you to be addicted to, to the product. Now, other products like free to play games. That's a different question. And so there's kind of an ethical dilemma. What happens when a product relies upon addicts? That's kind of a whole nother ethical question. Are there, are there any products or gaming systems or networks that actually do have any notifications like that or for any flags? Yes, actually, uh, there's a company called Stack Overflow. You know Stack Overflow, sure. I'm guessing. Every, sure. every engineer in the world knows Stack Overflow, right? It's the world's largest technical question and answer site. Sure. Uh, 5,000 questions get answered every single day. And the founder, one of the founders of Stack Overflow, Jeff Atwood, when I, when I talked to him about this policy they have, uh, told me that they have this policy where if you spend more than, I think it's 20 hours a week on Stack Overflow, uh, you can't earn any more points after a certain amount. And so the reason he did this, the reason he put this in place is one, he saw that the, the community actually suffered when, when people participated so much and became kind of obsessed about uh, earning more upvotes that the quality suffered. And two, he wanted Stack Overflow to be something that enhances users' lives as opposed to something that becomes 
their life. So that's an example of a company that has already built in breakers uh, into the system uh, so that people kind of slow down their consumption of the, of the product, their use of the product. And of course, there, there are use cases where um, in society where that acknowledges compulsive um, behavior in a bad way and, and short circuits it. I mean, the stock market is one of them. If it, you know, if it drops a certain percentage, they in a day they shut the market just to factor in that, that humans can be these compulsive get into these compulsive vicious cycles um, and of right. course I, I mean when gaming there's been many cases where um, young kids in, in uh, I mean the stories I've read usually in China or Hong Kong somewhere have played yeah. have gamed for so long that they've actually dropped dead literally right, right. Dead. Now, there's a kid almost every year that this happens to but you know, it, it's it's kind of fun to uh, to talk about the sensational news that's exceptionally rare. I, I want to reiterate again that you know th- this is on the fringe that people get sure. addicted to these products. It's a very small minority of, product, of people who get addicted to these type of things. Uh, typically, there's a psychographic profile for someone who gets addicted to all sorts of different things, whether it's alcohol, drugs, compulsive gambling, sex addiction, or electronics. Um, there's a psychographic profile for that type of person. And, and, and again, you know, the, the, but just because there's a small minority of people who suffer doesn't mean we shouldn't do something about it. Quite the opposite. I think the fact that we can do something for these people to help them means we absolutely should do something to help them. But to put it in perspective, it's a very small proportion of the population. And for most people, uh, they, they don't get addicted to these things, right? Again, we're not using Facebook intravenously. Maybe it's a bad habit from time to time when we're feeling particularly bored or particularly lonely. We find it hard to, to focus because we find ourselves constantly distracted. But then we get into something that's more interesting and we leave it, right? The, we, that, this is what tends to happen with almost all addictions. Uh, the, the, the greatest recovery tool is time uh, that, that eventually people you know, move on from these things. They get tired of them and they, and they move on to the next thing. And so I, I think that these products have in their interest to keep people engaging at a moderate degree, but for a very long period of time. And I think that's what we're going to start seeing in the future. But again, for the vast majority of, uh, of people building products out there, they're not at all worried about overuse. Sure. Is that quite the opposite? You know, they want to get people to, to use the product in the first place. What do you think of Yo? You know, the app Yo? Yeah, so so Yo is interesting. I mean, I don't, I don't think... Uh, I don't think Yo raised their million-dollar seed round uh, purely because of Yo uh, in, in the app incarnation that we saw. I think I think there's a bigger play there in that um, the, you know sending easy to respond notifications within notification uh, within the notification itself was interesting, right? So that uh, you could see use cases for. Uh, sending these external triggers, sending these notifications, and then quickly whisking people through these four steps of the hook uh, as quickly as possible. And I think that's what Yo actually demonstrated. And what's actually interesting about Yo is that you can go through these four steps of the hook uh, without actually entering the app. You can do a lot with this product just through the iOS notification interface. I think um, where I saw app, uh, Yo having huge potential is just mainly just a configurable notification system. So you mm-hmm. know, v- via their API, just all these use cases. I mean, I get a Yo when uh, Mark Andreessen starts one of his tweet storms, and I, I actually, oh. I, I actually quite like that. Um, it's terrific. Yeah, I mean, that's that's a great example of of a really helpful trigger. 
really helpful trigger. I mean, Mark Andreessen's tweets are, are fantastic. I've spoken about them before on the podcast. And sure, I can always go back and look at them. But uh, if I'm sitting on a bus and I happen to get a yo and be like, yep, sure, I'll, I'll start following them. Um, there was also a product at TechCrunch last year built by Sydney Guides, a product called uh, Notivo. And it was a really ambitious project to, to, to an app that sort of passively sits on your phone and mines all sort of uh, uh, information that's publicly available, weather, trains, traffic, uh, you know, tr- um, monitors your Google calendar and what you've been Googling in your Facebook and sort of matches the two and tries to get really intelligent at what it, at, at, and what it notifies you at. Very, very bold project. They were on the way, yeah. but, but to get that right, if you don't get it exactly right, it, it lands up being a pain and in, right. just painful. But, yeah. but, but there are people that are giving them this problem a go at solving. Yeah. yeah I mean, the Mark and Dreesen tweet storm thing, by the way, uh, is, is an excellent example of, of intrigue, right? That you get that notification and then you know, if it wasn't interesting, if it wasn't something that you, you knew you were going to be interested in, then it wouldn't be very useful to you. But you're you're intrigued to figure out, okay, what's Mark Andreessen going to say next? There's this bit of mystery. What's he what's he gonna tackle? What's he gonna what, what am I gonna learn here? And you almost think um, that's something that Twitter should get on board with. I mean, Twitter's you know been having problems with user growth, and uh, w- one of the elements I think that Facebook is far better at is their their, their notifications hook you in from all sorts of angles, whereas Twitter's you know there's there's yeah that intrigue they struggle to uh, they struggle to hook you in with with intrigue you almost got to discover it yourself or curate your own lists or it leaves a lot of that up to you whereas facebook somehow sort of guides you along a lot better right well well the biggest differentiation is that uh facebook can manipulate uh the algorithm behind what you see and what you don't see whereas uh you know you you don't see all your friends uh posts they 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 have they, you know, Facebook spends a lot of time figuring out whose posts you should see and whose posts you should not see. Why do they do that? Because of this critical fourth step of the hook. Uh, I'm sorry, the third step of the hook, the, the variable reward phase. They're trying to figure out the right balance to keep the feed variable. If it's too mundane, if it's not very interesting, you're not going to come back. Uh, and so you need to have the right ratio between, you know, your Aunt Martha's boring post and your crazy college friend's interesting post and the, the, the little ad they put in there to keep you scrolling and scrolling. You need to find the right ratio of interesting to mundane posts. You can't just post everything. So they have all kinds of ways to figure out what you should see and what you should not see. Twitter has a problem because what happened over the past few years is that people followed a lot of people without any discretion around who actually tweets well and who doesn't tweet well. So our, our Twitter feeds have become kind of polluted with a lot of uninteresting tweets, and that makes people kind of fade off after time. And so you see things that Twitter has done recently where they put these, um, uh, these little curated blocks mm-hmm. of the best tweets from your network that you may have missed. And they're doing that specifically because they're trying to increase the ratio of rewarding tweets, interesting tweets, to the not very interesting tweets. Is there anything else you think Twitter can do? I mean, I think a lot about this problem. Obviously, we built a product on Twitter and uh, their user growth numbers. Are, I mean, in a way, their strength is their weakness. They still own the real-time space. And the real-time mm-hmm. space is, yeah, I mean, the, the strength is it's not an algorithm. And, and that's why Twitter owns the real-time space. Yeah. So, you know, I think where Twitter is nice is uh, as a consumer. And I think that for the vast majority of people, you know, it's the, it's the 1990 problem, that it's 1% of the people create content, 
9% of the people interact with that content or occasionally create content, and then 90% of the population just consumes. And it turns out that because of this variable reward problem of, you know, that this problem with the ratio of interesting to mundane content, uh, that 90% of the population falls out pretty quickly unless you get them to make stuff. So the critical, uh, you know, the first hump that Twitter had to get over was to get you to follow people, to go through their first hook, and the investment is following people so that you can become a content consumer. What Twitter has to do is to get people to start creating content, and that's where the magic behind Twitter really takes off. When you become a content creator and you start getting social feedback based on your tweets, I think then Twitter becomes a very habit-forming product. So if, if I were over at Twitter, I would try and figure out how can we get people to tweet more as opposed to just consuming what they're tweeting I mean, or what other people are tweeting. I mean, it's an interesting point you make because a lot of the people that I've spoken to about um, you know, Twitter and they, a lot of them say, I've registered my account, but I don't tweet. I'm scared of saying something stupid. A lot of right. them have actually said that, that exact same sentence because it's so public right. and there's all these famous people. They're scared of looking like idiots. That is a huge, huge barrier. And if you look at the second phase of the hook, the action phase, the action phase is all about the simplest behavior done in anticipation of reward. And when you think about what blocks action, what blocks a behavior, there's six basic elements, uh, time, money, physical effort, brain cycles, non-routine, and social conformity. And so the one that keeps coming up and keeps blocking the action for Twitter is this cognitive load aspect, this brain cycles of thinking, am I going to be judged? What should I say? Am I going to sound stupid? That is a huge barrier to action. So Twitter's got to figure out ways to make it easier for people to contribute to tweet in ways that are lower friction. I mean, some examples of that, the, some things you can do, and you know, it's iterated in other products. WhatsApp fixed this problem by making it small, intimate groups. So now the social pressure around being judged is reduced because there's just people I feel very close with. Instagram solved this problem by reducing the cognitive load of what to share by just snapping a picture. Right now, I don't have to think about what, to, how I can be witty, and if it's going to be judged, I can just snap a picture, and that's what Instagram is all about. So there's other ways to solve that. I mean, video actually, you know, uh, uh, Twitter adding video recently mm. tries to solve this problem. Uh, and so I think you're going to see them looking for other ways to make it easier to create content as opposed to just consuming it. I think they're really stuck in a corner because they, there's always the risk of uh, eroding your, um, you, you know, your core value and offering um, by doing something new. So they, they, they don't want to, you know, like the Craigslist, uh, you know, still hasn't, hasn't changed much. It's, it's working. Don't, don't, don't fix what's um, not broken. And, and in, in many ways, a lot is right with Twitter. So how can you keep what is right right and at the same time bolt on uh, added value along the way as well? Yeah, yeah. It's not easy. I mean, they, they've had a tremendous success story so far. And uh, I, I don't know, I'm, I'm, I'm optimistic about Twitter. I, I would go long on Twitter, actually. I, I, I would also. I would also. Uh, Nier, it's been great talking to you. I know we've taken up a lot of your time. Nier Ayala, the author, uh, Nier Ayala is the author of Hooked, How to Build Habit-Forming Products. Fascinating book. If uh, you're a product person, um, get hold of it. Nier, I really appreciate your time. Thanks for talking to us on the podcast. My pleasure, Kevin. Thanks so much for having me. Thank you. Bye-bye. Bye-bye.